Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, has earned himself the title of the man from whom God hid nothing. That's who I'm talking about today on the Lenses That Liberate podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Derek here, and welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking with my friend Stephen Brass. Stephen is very well steeped in the Christian tradition. He's also, like me, has done a lot of exploration in Eastern traditions. So this is a very interesting and rich conversation, I felt. Meister Eckhart is somebody I feel that lived a very embodied life, and you can really feel that from his words. And so I really didn't want this podcast to be just an intellectual conversation. So the way it's structured is, Stephen and I read different quotes from Meister Eckhart, and then sit in the transmission. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you get something from it too. So here's my conversation with Stephen Bross. So I'm back here with my friend Stephen Bross, and today we're going to be exploring Meister Eckhart, who's regarded by many as one of the greatest of the Christian mystics. He was around in the 13th and 14th century from Germany, from the Dominican order. And my guess is he's probably so respected for his ability not only to transmit the more traditional Christian themes, such as our relationship with God, he's actually able to transmit so many of the Eastern teachings as well, or at least the teachings that were much more prevalent in the East. Teachings such as no self, nothingness, the absolute. In a lot of his work, he's even questioning the fundamentals of time and space, which at least from my limited understanding of these things, that's very unusual. People like Carl Jung, the Dalai Lama, Matthew Fox, have cited him as a great influence on them in their lives. And I recently heard a, um, a Swami comparing the depth of Eckhart's teachings to the Upanishads, which is quite a compliment from somebody from that tradition. So we'd really like this exploration today to be very experiential. So what we're going to do is, rather than just speaking about Meister Eckhart and who he was and what he was up to, we're going to intersperse some of that with quoting him, with sitting in the transmission of some of the things he had to say. And hopefully that comes through, because while both of us aren't scholars on this, both of us have definitely been very much touched by his work And that's what we're here to explore together today. So before we start getting into Meister Eckhart, Stephen, maybe you could speak briefly about Christian mysticism and where you feel it has its greater place in Christianity in general. Wow. (laughs) Well, hello. That's a a great question. Um, Wow, where to begin? I think one of the challenges of our Christian path is how Unlike other religious traditions, early on, we, there was a split in the Christian tradition where the contemplative path went one direction, where people who really wanted to give their lives over to this path were relegated to monasteries and separated away from cities and common life. And those who were householders or lived their common lives um, were not in that path. And so we had these two unrelated um, 
paths where people who are living in the ordinary world weren't really connected to the contemplative tradition. Mm. So one of the cool things about Meister Eckhart was that he was in the Dominican order, but he had a parish. He was a priest. And so we, we fortunately have his sermons. We have his teachings. Um, so a lot of monks, we never know what, what happened to them, but, but his transmission comes to us. And I would say in the, the Christian mystical path, what we are given is the, the communication of the direct experience of God from people that all in their own unique ways, um, through practice or spontaneously, uh, experience the Holy Spirit in very vital and often surprising or revolutionary mm. ways. Um, St. Francis, for example, was a mystic who, uh, without his participation in the church, we may not have a church today. Mm. <laughs> because in the 13th century, the church had become so corrupt and such a laughing stock among people in, in how opulent and, um, and corrupt and distorted it had become as an institution that it, it probably wouldn't have survived. But when Francis showed up and brought this radical practice of preaching in the streets, which just hadn't been done, um, and healing, healing the sick and being with the poor, he himself became this radical example of Christ that totally infused the church with new energy and fresh air. And his movement just spread across Europe like wildfire, and you would never expect it because he was inviting people into homelessness and poverty. <laughs> and yet it became wildly popular. It's an unusual invitation to take off in society, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So the the writings of the mystics are uh, quite inspiring, and and a lot of them are are really out there. Like um, Therese of Avila wrote about having really flashy experiences and even encountering demons or the devil that would come and sit on her bed and um some of some of the communications of the mystics are so uh are so extravagant that you wonder about their sanity or you even wonder about the their mental health like francis would often refer to himself as brother ass <laughs> or um he would he would be so full of self-deprecation you really you really kind of wonder like where was he mentally so the the mystics are often skating that edge between sanity and insanity mm. um, but what what to me is most beautiful and powerful about them is just the transmission that comes through their words and the strength and depth of their love and eckhart may be for me the most the clearest most direct transmission of his own consciousness and an understanding of god which really is pure Buddhism. It, mm. <laughs> he never would have met a Buddhist in medieval Germany. Um, but you listen to his sermons and it's, it's really fully in alignment with all of Buddhist teachings. And his, his relationship to language was so clear in, in that he understood how we bring so much baggage into our relationship with God that it's a, it's our job to empty ourselves as much as possible in to, in order to encounter not our idea of god but who god actually or what god actually is or what that word points to like his famous quote of i pray god to rid me of god 
Mm-hmm. Captures that that idea of of I'm the one who's in the way of really directly experiencing the reality of God. Which is a very confronting thing for even us as modern people, isn't it? It's so different from, I mean, I think there's a way in which from a bigger map we can understand the process of individuation and also self-emptying as they can both coexist. But for a lot of different schools to hear something like that sounds not life-affirming for some people. They tend to react quite shockingly, but really the more I've explored his teachings and understood them and I sense the light he meant, that really isn't the case. Right, right. Well, it's like Jesus' teachings about dying to ourselves. He said, you know, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll know life everlasting. So there's this recurrent theme in Jesus' teachings, which Eckhart echoes, which is that self-emptying is a way of of dying into a much more vibrant life. Mm, Beautiful. Matthew Fox, as I was looking at his book before doing this, he said uh, about Meister Eckhart, he said, his teachings put Christ back into Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think he was very much echoing some of those self-emptying sentiments of Christ and probably many other things, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenge of Jesus' teachings is that he didn't leave us with any practices. And he taught us through parables, which are riddles. So there's so much about him and his teachings that are confounding or perplexing. And I think there there was something about that that was intentional. Like he wanted us to be confounded, to be drawn into wrestling with the meaning of his words. Um, But without good mentors or teachers, it's easy to be just confused and not know where to begin or how do we relate to these these parables and traditionally church and priests from the pulpit don't particularly teach a contemplative path they don't teach us how to hold hold paradox or to actually seek to be in a place of not knowing to seek to be emptied um we've we've been more oriented I would say externally, we've been more focused on the poor or the community or being good people, (laughs) you know, which are all good things. There's no criticism. It's just, we haven't had that tradition. And Eckhart, I think, opens a doorway into a whole different way of relating to God. Like, like he says, be willing to be a beginner every single morning. Mm. Like that idea of of coming fresh into the presence and starting new. Carl Jung, who many people would know here as the, the founder of analytical psychology, he spoke very highly of Eckhart. And in researching this, I was quite amazed by some of the quotes from him. So maybe I'll share a couple of them with you here just to spark us off, because I think they're amazing. He said, first of all, in general, to do with the mystics, he said, it is to the mystics that we owe what is best in humanity and only the mystics bring what is creative to religion itself. Mm. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Oh, wow. Yeah. And then in terms of the context of relating from this lineage of Eckhart, of what he actually brought forth, really this inner inquiry, 
questioning the self, questioning the fundamentals of who we are, which is not often present in many Christian teachings, he really echoes as strongly how we need to preserve our own tradition in the West of this versus borrow it from the East. And here's what he says about this. What it has taken China thousands of years to build cannot be grasped by theft. Of what use to us is the wisdom of the Upanishads or the insight of Chinese yoga if we desert the foundations of our own culture as though they were errors outlived and like homeless pirates settle with thievish intent on foreign soils. With Eckhart, we touch the depths of Western culture's wisdom, which connects to the depths of Eastern wisdom. We can reach these depths as we begin to know the truth of the Western traditions as Eckhart lays it out for us. Mm. It's incredibly complimentary, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I can relate to that quote very strongly because I've spent most of my life on Eastern paths. Likewise, doing yeah. yoga and breathing, meditation, following the the, um, the Hindu teachings, texts, Vedic texts, and Buddhism, and uh, I find that what I am most drawn to in Christianity is this idea that Jesus was incarnate; he was embodied, and the Christian teaching, I think, at its heart, is really about the integration of matter and spirit of of human and our transcendent nature. And, and so Eckhart, in my view, really, really makes this clear that it's about embodiment. And there's a, there's a beautiful quote that I love of his that I have here that says, spirituality is not to be learned by flight from the world or by running away from things or by turning solitary and going apart from the world. Rather, we must learn an inner solitude wherever or with whomever we may be. We must learn to penetrate things and find God there. Mm. Very inclusive of the reality before him, the reality of nature, of seeing it as divine, which again is not that common in Christianity, right? Really, right. yeah, seeing the world in its fullness as an expression of God. Right. Yeah. And there, there has been a thread in Christianity of dualism, of wanting to get away from this world, which is governed by sin or is associated yeah. with darkness. And that heaven, being heaven focused is, is where we should be. Whereas there's another thread in, in the Christian tradition and Eckhart's pointing to it here, which is that we, we meet God in the penetration of things. We find God here. And, and that's really congruent with a, a lot of the latest understanding in psychology and trauma healing and becoming embodied that we, we don't heal by trying to escape from our pain. We heal by entering into it in a way that's, that's conscious and compassionate, but that the body's intelligence gets woken up when we're willing to fully be present with what is. Very nice. It's also very congruent what he's saying with the tantric parts of India and Tibet of tantra and its original meaning, meaning to weave together. So we're mm. weaving together our current experience and including it. It's just quite remarkable to hear somebody from that Western mind of, as we said, the 13th and 14th century, that's when he was living. What must it have been like for him 
to be experiencing these things inside of him around such a different society where these days it's not heretical to claim to notice ourselves as being divine in nature, to seeing ourselves as God. These things don't get you killed these days. They're not even particular <laughs> trouble. It might make you a bit of a weirdo with your friends if you're in a particular community, but you know, you're know you in no immediate danger. But for somebody like this to actually rise up to, to go so deeply into this and to write about it so elegantly that people like the Dalai Lama, as I've said, or read his writings and say, it feels completely congruent with what they're saying and their teachings. It's quite amazing. You know? Yes, absolutely. It, it's remarkable that the church in his day, which, which did have an inquisition and the inquisition was, was gearing up, um, but he had been through a couple different inquisitions with a church council, and he was such a master of language and so expert in theology that each of those times he was he was able to talk himself out of being indicted, <laughs> and they they just couldn't corner him because he had such a a, a fluency in in Christian theology and of course in his direct experience that that he just short-circuited their their logic it seemed to me what i what i read about him though was that in general he genuinely believed that he wasn't a heretic in the sense no he, he really believed oh, he, no. he was not actually against like there's other people in traditional faiths that you can sense they're really going against the grain and trying to but my sense is from my limited reading of him that he really wasn't trying to do that he was actually he felt like in the same tradition of St. Augustine and different people, he was just bringing right. that way of thinking forward, right. not in any way that was oppositional to Christianity or the Orthodox Church. Right. Yeah, to read his sermons is to connect with his deep compassion and, and love of humanity and how strongly he longed for people to have the experience he was having um, of freedom and of stillness and mm. connection, meaning, and um, but that his teaching was centered in direct experience. It wasn't a conceptual teaching. It was, it was really about pointing us to that which is beyond all teachings, pointing us to that which is beyond thought. Like his, his one quote where he says, nothing in all creation is so like God as stillness. Mm -hmm. I love that because it, it calls you to actually just rest there and taste what he's talking about, that he's pointing us again and again to this direct experience, which all the mystics were about that. They were about divine union, but that we have that capacity to know ourselves and to experience ourselves as not separate. It's beautiful. Yeah, the simplicity of that is overpowering. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a gorgeous one from him. He says, become submerged in yourselves. Plunge down into self-contemplation. And from the depths of your being, God will shine upon you. He will outshine everything for you. You have found him within yourselves. You have become united with God's essence. God has become man so that I might become God. Mm. 
God has become man so that I might become God. Mm. That, if that's not a, a description of the spiritual path, I'm not sure what is. Yeah. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's like in the you know in the Hindu path, the path of bhakti, mm. uh, which is the Christian path. It's the path of devotion. Mm. Um, there is this understanding that God is so abstract, is so transcendent, is so beyond anything we can conceive of. We need something to to connect to, like concretize the abstraction of God and make it relatable, make it real, which is where the devotional path comes in. You, 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 your heart, which is full of longing, wants an object of love to land in. And so to me, like, that's what Christ was. He was not only the object of our love, but the, the example of what we can be when we are living in our highest capacity as divine. He made visible something that is outrageously abstract and how could you conceive of a human being who lives at that vibration without an example of it <laughs> or who who makes the transcendent knowable that's beautiful yeah yeah it's like with his teachings he's got a very nice balance between in christianity what they would call the via positiva and the via negativa right where he's able to connect with the unknowable god through positive statements, through love, through feeling the deepest qualities and moving towards that mystery by becoming one with those qualities. And he has a lot of that in his writings. And at the same time, he's able to turn around in a second and present the via negativa, the way of unknowing where actually no quality can capture God, the unknown. Mm. And he's able to move back and forth between the two of these very seamlessly. <laughs> you can tell from his writings that he's very, very comfortable with that paradox. He's not trying to expose one to overcome the other. Right. That's that's for me when I'm reading somebody's writing, somebody who's able to hold that paradox and it's a real sign of their um depth, their realization, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah, well I think Eckhart in his description of the via negativa which is self-emptying or the, yeah, the merging into the darkness or the void, which to the mind is terror, can be terrifying. Um, but he reframes negative and not as negative, but as empty. Mm -hmm. And that, that it is actually our birthplace or the place of deep transformation. And our culture has had such a, a difficult or, um, challenging relationship to death and darkness wanting to avoid that but he he makes it clear that 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 spiritually when we open ourselves to to that dimension we're opening ourselves to rebirth like he has the quote only the hand that erases can write the true thing beautiful So in line with the Taoist teachings, too, of the Great Way, about finding our place in the Great Way, they are, what he's saying feels completely seamless with that. No gap. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or the Hindu practice of neti neti. That's right. Which is not this, not that, 
not this. It's knowing God through negation, through subtraction, through erasure. That which remains after everything else is, is, has disappeared. And I really notice in reading his writings, it gives me faith or hope to die a little more, to let go a little more, to, to notice in my own emptying like that, that there's an example of a person that's been filled up after they've been willing to be emptied. It just inspires me to go further with that, you know? Mm, yeah. There's a beautiful one I have here in front of me. This is a translation from Daniel Ladinsky's book. His book is called Love Poems from God. Mm-hmm. And he has some poems in there from Meister Eckhart. And here's some, yeah, this is very beautiful. He says, It's called to see as God sees. It is your destiny to see as God sees, to know as God knows, to feel as God feels. How is this possible? Because divine love cannot divide its very self. Divine love will be eternally true to its own being. And its being is giving all it can at the perfect moment. And the greatest gift God can give his own experience, every object, every creature, every man, woman, and child has a soul and has a destiny of all to see as God sees, to know as God knows, to feel as God feels, to be as God is. Mm. Ken Wilbur has this beautiful teaching around the one, two, three of God. Ken Wilbur being the founder of integral theory. And he calls it also the, the three faces of spirit. And I think in many different traditions, third person relationship with God, that is seeing God outside of ourselves, that it relationship, seeing it in the sky, a beautiful song, is acceptable in most traditions, as it is in most mainstream Christianity too, to see God as that. And then in second-person relationship, that I-thou relationship, to be in relationship with God is obviously the main modality that Christianity has always been as the Holy Father, or maybe in a less sophisticated way as a, an old man in the sky with a gray beard, or whatever way we're entering relationship with that I-thou relationship. But what's very beautiful about the Christian mystics, and definitely in particular here at Meister Eckhart, is he's really inviting us into this first-person relationship, Mm. which can only come about through inner contemplation, where in first-person relationship, we start to experience ourselves as God. We start to notice that we are the source of everything. Mm. And in that little poem there, to see as God sees, I mean, that was really what heresy was back then, wasn't it? It wasn't to do with seeing God in nature or to seeing or to having a particular I-thou relationship with God. I'm sure you could get in trouble for some of those too, but definitely that was the main thing to declare yourself. That's what our friend Jesus got in a bit of trouble about too, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But that's really what he's echoing here, isn't it? He's like, right. he's, he's so deeply in that experience. It's like, he's not, as he said, he's not even trying to be heretical. He just has to express his experience of that. Right. And no wonder that, you know, the institutions of church or government would find that most threatening because in in Jesus and the way Eckhart reflects that is that spirit is the ultimate equalizer and the democratizer. It's leveler of everything. And, and when we wake up to the fact that 
we have access to this power of life force that we have access we are autonomous we are fully governed by this deep innate authority and that we are our own authority well institutions of authority will find that threatening <laughs> it's not good news yes yeah? yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely here's another one he has around um really echoes the sentiments we were talking about how congruent his teachings are with uh, the deeper teachings of hinduism and buddhism mm. i actually saw this poem it was translated i think by daniel ladinsky and i just found this version of it a few days ago which feels very different to me it feels much rawer whatever way this translation perhaps it's translated more literally from the original german but here it is mm. he says when i dwell in the ground in the bottom in the stream and in the source of the Godhead, no one asked me where I was going or what I was doing. Back in the womb from which I came, I had no God and merely was myself. And when I returned to God and to the core, the soil, the ground and the stream and the source of the Godhead, no one asks me where I am coming from or where I have been, for no one misses me in the place where God ceases to become. Hmm. So powerful. Hmm. The place where God ceases to become. Wow, wow. yeah. That puts you there. <laughs> Shuts the mind off. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That makes me think of this other quote of his where he said, theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language. Mm. And I love that because that quote you shared reminds me of Rumi, you know, and the way Rumi's poetry often talks about this theme of death death to the small self or awakening to that larger emptiness um, such as where he says out beyond all ideas of right doing and wrong doing there's a field I'll meet you there when the soul lies down in that grass the world is too full for words um, that's beautiful yeah even the words each other make no sense really sense from Eckhart's writings here that there's a man that'd probably be able to lie down in that field pretty seamlessly with a Rumi and have a good laugh together, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, they, I think they were actually contemporaries, Rumi and Eckhart. They lived in the same... I was going to ask you that, yeah. I don't know exactly the dates of when Rumi was alive. I know they overlapped. I don't know if they were they adults yeah. at the same time. But yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder would they have heard of one another? That Unlikely, right? Given the time? Yeah, it's probably not likely. Um, although there is speculation that St. Francis, when he went to the Crusades, um, very likely would have run into, not Rumi, Rumi would have been too young, but probably Shams, Rumi's teacher. Yes. Rumi would have been like 12 when huh. Francis went through Turkey. Um, Do you know much about his time there? 
a bit and it's it's amazing because saint francis went to the crusades to try and put a stop to them mm. and he with his outrageous and signature courage just walked <laughs> up to the to the battle and he walked all the way through enemy lines to the sultan's palace is that right and and he asked to have um audience with the sultan and his guards let him in just amazed that he had made it that far and the sultan was so impressed with his courage that that he he just walked right up to him <laughs> that he let him in and and francis wound up spending a few days with him they became fast friends and uh, the story goes that that francis said to the sultan you know, we could end all this bloody fighting if you would just convert to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go over? <laughs> well, I, you can imagine that Francis was, was so gentle and so much in his heart that the Sultan didn't take offense at that. Um, and the Sultan kind of recognized where Francis was coming from. And he, you know, he explained to him, well, that's not going to happen. Um, but here, let me tell you a few things about, about our Muslim practice. And, as they got to know each other and became friends, Francis actually wound up incorporating several of Muslim practices in the Franciscan order. That's fabulous. Like the praying of five times a day and their diet. And yeah, so that's a beautiful little example in history of some inter early interfaith dialogue and connection. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my guess is too, probably the way he said convert to Christianity was probably very different than the translation because my sense is anyone who taps into these mystical places, it's really not mm. about shifting from one organized religion to another, but so much tapping into the commonality of that. And for me growing up, as I've said to you before, I quickly fell away from Orthodox Christianity, you know, by the age I was 10 or 11, and I still have zero to do with that. But right. these people, they feel like a totally different subsection of Christianity that you know, growing up in school in Ireland and different places, there was all these pictures of saints on the wall. But people saw these people as sort of buffoons or strange, unusual religious people. But really, these mm. mystics and people who were aligned in this sort of way were actually renegades and rebels and right. heroes, actually. Like you said, I mean, that story, anybody who's interested in heroism would really, <laughs> you know, respect that story you just said around St. Francis, wouldn't they? of like his bravery to actually go in and do something like that. That's clearly a man that's connecting with something much deeper than his own life to do something like that. That's driven by something much beyond his own self-preservation, you know? Oh, absolutely. Right. Right. It's an incredible story. Yeah. The Buddhists and different teachings are, I mean, this is a, this is a phrase right out of Buddhism, isness, mm, which is right. beingness and, the way this next quote I'm going to read from Meister Eckhart here is translated as the same word. He says, Now the moment I flowed out from the Creator, all creatures stood up and shouted, Behold, here is God. They were correct. For you ask me, Who is God? What is God? I reply, Isness. Isness is God. Where there is isness, there is God. Creation is giving of isness from God. Mm. I mean, if you were just to take that word out of God and replace it with something different, you could easily find that in one of the suttas, wouldn't you? 
Yes. The old Buddhist text. Yeah. Well, that's gorgeous because it makes God not a noun, but a verb, you know? And so God isn't an object, but God is, is pure being, which, which is itself verbing <laughs> or it is, it is continually bringing itself into creation as existence itself. That's right. Isness. Yeah. I've had that experience like in meditation of noticing that in that meditation, I can't find an I like mm. I can't locate a, a self or there isn't a, like if I were to speak anything that were true, it wouldn't be, I am that that didn't have that, the, the sense of the attribute of truth, but to just say is felt very true. And it's like in that deep place of meditation, we're, we are that isness. We are that pure being that I think a lot of traditional Christianity can, can get caught up in objectifying God or making God or even Christ um, known entities. Whereas throughout the Bible, God is always saying through scripture, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I am unfathomable. There is the, the ungraspable quality of God that, that Eckhart's pointing to and clarifying that you're pointing to in, in the Buddhist tradition and scriptures always telling us that God is ungraspable. And even in Isaiah where there's the line, be still and know that I am God. It is, it's that stillness that Eckhart refers to nothing in all creation is so like God as stillness that, um, that it's that direct experience and communion that reveals to us what God is or what that word points to. It's beautiful again, watching the way he's seamlessly moving between that map of Ken Wilbur's of those three different ways of relating to God. So mm. when I'm looking at that quote of isness, it's like, again, that it way of seeing things, he's seeing it everywhere. God and the isness are that right. quote from Isaiah. You said of be still and know I am God. It's that first person relationship and Eckhart's ability to include all three of them. Uh, imagine how unusual that must have been back then for, for mm. somebody to be the living embodiment of seamlessly conveying that to people. It must right. have been so, so unusual to, to have that level of integration. Whereas, as I said, it's clear from his writings that he's not differentiating in any kind of hierarchy between the personal relationship with God seeing God everywhere as creation or knowing oneself a God at their core. Right. Right. He's, he's, there's no hierarchy. It's, it's simple for him. And, and it's simple, you know, it's simple because his words are simple. He's not right. using more than he needs to, to describe it. Right. He gets to the punchline quickly, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In Buddhism, there's that, uh, the tradition or the deep understanding that, Really, the only thing that stands between us and the truth of who we are as Buddha nature is our thoughts, is mm -hmm. just this endless activity of the mind. And that Eckhart gets that at such a deep level that he's always pointing us to what's beyond the mind. Like his famous quote, I pray God to rid me of God. That it's our thoughts of God, our descriptions, our definitions that actually separate us from the reality 
of what God is or that word God points to. I was watching Matthew Fox yesterday in an interview and preparing for this talk about, I believe it was that quote, and he said something like, even the atheists have a place with Meister Eckhart because he's really speaking to that place of to rid oneself of the false God, of that sort mm. of, you could say, inspired dynamics, that blue God, the hypocrisy of that, that it doesn't make sense in logic in particular ways, that actually there's a right. place for people who even see it that way in Meister Eckhart's yeah. teachings, which is fascinating. He, he wouldn't have been against modern atheism. Right, you know? right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or at least a lot of it, you know, the healthier aspects, yeah. Yeah, I've been re listening to uh, Peter Rollins lately, the, mm. the Irish theologian who I really like because he's a big fan of atheism and, and he has this very funny kind of tongue-in-cheek way of relating to church and um, spiritual community. They meet in pubs and he has this practice of giving up God for, for Lent. <laughs> and so for 40 days, he invites people to be atheists and to read the teachings or the writings of famous atheists, like not like these new atheists who are kind of superficial, but like a really good atheist like Nietzsche, who, mm. um, who has some great arguments. And, and I think there's, there's something about the willingness to deconstruct our definitions of God and our assumptions that is so refreshing and liberating. You know, in the evangelical church where I was for like a year and a half when I was in college, there's so much fear around if I lose my faith or if I lose my belief in God as, as doctrine tells me that I'll, I'll be at risk of going to hell or in some way I'll be, I'll be in danger. Or I'll open myself to satanic forces or Satan taking me over. Um, but I find that it's an ultimate act of faith to be willing to let go of every idea of God you cling to. It's an ultimate trusting of God that, that when I, when I leave my assumptions and ideas behind and even all of my beliefs aside and just connect with this presence raw as it is now, that is the ultimate act of faith and trust. And that is to me, that is the most profound way to, to actually encounter the living God that is here and now that lives in our hearts, lives everywhere. And the, the miracle is that it's fully knowable. It's fully, accessible i've often thought of it like this the last few years whatever this thing is that's living everything whatever this thing is it doesn't need my ideas about it to sustain itself <laughs> if it does it's a very weak force you know right that's helped me a lot in framing it like that to myself at times because it doesn't need my belief in it whether right. we call it god the unknown buddha nature it doesn't need me to form solid ideas around it for it to be itself. Right. And w when I've been in really difficult times, challenging times, or I'm in a lot of emotional pain or depression, or I I've experienced loss, I can feel the tendency to get mad at God. And, and that sometimes happens, but often I, I recognize that the problem isn't there's something wrong with God because my life isn't going the way it should be going. But that's an indication that there's something, there's something mistaken in my assumptions about how God works. <laughs> that, yeah. 
that when things don't go well, it's actually probably a case that I need to revisit my definitions of God. Mm. That's a humble way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Here's the nice quote from um, Eckhart, to do with free will and being with the mind. <clears throat> the freer the mind is, the more powerful and worthy, the more useful, praiseworthy and perfect the prayer and the work become. A free mind can achieve all things. But what is a free mind? A free mind is one which is untroubled and unfettered by anything, which has not bound its best part to any particular manner of being or devotion, and which does not seek its own interest in anything, but is always immersed in God's most precious will, having gone out of what it is its own. There is no work which men and women can perform, however small, which does not draw from its power and its strength. Wow, that's so powerful. Isn't it? I was reading these last night, as I said, in preparation for this, and I was just mm. blown away by some of them. Yeah. It's like in reading his words, whatever that frequency is that he was able to access and abide in himself, is here with us when we're able to tune into the meaning of them. Right. Yeah, it's amazing in that last quote how he captures both this notion that when we can experience ourselves beyond our narrow definitions of who we are and who God is, but actually mm -hmm. enter into this freedom of pure being, that, that that freedom then imbues everything we do and inspires our actions and our actions become impactful or they, when they're drawing from that source, they are a reflection of that source. Yeah, he says, but is always immersed in God's most precious will. Mm. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I loved one of the quotes you said earlier about submerge yourself in yourself. Do you remember? Yes. That was a gorgeous image to be submerged. <laughs> yeah. Which again is, yeah, he's so, um, he's so offering us a transmission of what it means to connect with the depth of ourselves like this. And then yeah, to submerge ourselves, which is, as I said, you and I have both um, spent a lot of time in Buddhism and Eastern paths. And we've both spent a lot of time being with the mind in particular ways. And here's a direct invitation from somebody from Christianity inviting us to do exactly the same, you know? Right. Yeah. I think Christianity or the teachings of Jesus um, carry with them uh, such an interesting and paradoxical, paradoxical relationship to religion and to the institution of the church that is, there's this paradoxical revolutionary kind of sub subversion or revolutionary dis deconstruction of the, of religious institutions that Jesus was kind of deconstructing the temple or the Jewish tradition while at the same time bringing in something utterly new and fresh and that there's this it's like the hand that erases everything it writes there's this perpetual mm -hmm. becoming and dis dissolving becoming and dissolving becoming and dissolving and this 
Right. This recognition that, that once you kind of grasp onto something or it crystallizes into a belief or an idea or, or a doctrine that it, if it's crystallized, then it's no longer in that flow of divine truth. And, and then it just, that just leads to separation and suffering. That quote you were saying around ridding ourselves of God, I think really speaks mm. to what you're saying, doesn't it? That false, any idea of God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No false idols. Yeah. Right. Adyashanti talks about when the ego sees the void or sees the emptiness of self, it's terrified because that looks like death. It looks like the end. And it is. But he said, the void that you're looking at is your own self. And so, like, mm. if you, if you, when you have the experience of letting go into that void, you realize that there was never any falling or there was never any place to go to other than here. Like Trungpa Rinpoche would say that, that the bad news on the spiritual, on the spiritual path is that we are, we discover that we're in free fall, that there's nothing to hold on to, there's no grips. There's no concepts that will save us. But the good news is that there's no bottom. Yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing to hit. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. I think when you're speaking about the void. I've definitely experienced the terror of the void many, many times. I've experienced mm. dying into the void many times. And I probably have many, many more dyings to go into that void. It seems like a, <laughs> a repeatable process until you reach the bottom of it. But yeah, I really resonate with right. that for sure. Yeah. Here's another one from him around surrendering to God. He says, And so in my view, the most important thing of all is that we should give ourselves up entirely to God whenever he allows anything to befall us, whether insult, tribulation, or any kind of suffering, accepting it with joy and gratitude and allowing God to guide us all the more rather than seeking these things out ourselves. Mm. For me, that quote is more like an aspiration because I definitely, <laughs> I don't take well to insult in lots of places and I definitely don't feel joyous when tribulations are coming. But when I hear that quote, I wouldn't try to emulate it so much be inspired by it. Yeah. I wouldn't try to, trying to act that way for me has never worked. Trying to act more pious than I am or trying to be different is not, is not in my vernacular. For some people, maybe that works. But, but when I read that, mm. I'm inspired that somebody has found a way of living with suffering and living with what befalls them, as he said, and meeting it with joy. It's, it's inspiring for me to think that somebody can come to that place in an authentic way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's remarkable, I think, how, how wise that teaching is and how connected it is to our own biology. Because I, I think what, what a lot of spiritual teachings show us is that our, our spiritual wiring and our biological wiring are inverse to each other. That biologically, we are conditioned or we are wired to contract in the face of any kind of threat, to to defend, to run, to, um, to actually become more dense. Whereas in, this, in the spiritual truth, like Eckhart's pointing us to, 
that the invitation is that when you're in the face of that darkness or you're in the face of suffering or some kind of challenge, that the invitation is actually not contraction, but to expand into it, mm-hmm. to, to open to it, to become um, transparent. And, and in doing that, then what's challenging reveals to us another dimension that we aren't connected to, which is beyond the biological. It's actually the transcendent or it's the, it's the spiritual dimension that can reveal itself perhaps most powerfully through suffering. And there's a, there's a quote of his where he says, truly it is in the darkness that one finds the light. So when we are in sorrow, then this light is nearest of all to us. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was having a, quite a hard time. And I was saying things like that to her. It's quite hard to see it we're in, when we're in that process. Right. But it's yeah. sometimes a lot clearer from the outside when it's somebody else experiencing it. But yeah. it, it really does seem that way in hindsight so often that those times when we're most left in the dark, we're most left naked with ourselves, there's actually another quote. I don't know if I can find it right off, but it goes like this. He says, Why God sometimes allows people who are genuinely good to be hindered in the good that they do. God, who is faithful, allows his friends to fall frequently into weakness only in order to remove from them any prop on which they might lean. For a loving person, it would be a great joy to be able to achieve many great feats whether keeping vigils, fasting, performing other aesthetical practices, or doing major difficult and unusual works. For them, this is a great joy, a support and source of hope, so that their works become a prop and a support upon which they may lean. But it can be precisely this which our Lord wishes to take from them, so that he alone will be their help and support. This he does solely on account of their pure goodness and mercy, for God is prompted to act only by his goodness, and in no way do our works serve to make God give us anything or do anything for us. Our Lord wishes his friends to be freed from such an attitude, and thus he removes their support from them, so that they must henceforth find their only support in him. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Like it underscores this understanding that God's love for us is primary. And God's desire for us to know that love, to be in that love, is everything. And that our works are what they are. But that there's no confusion that those works are in any way related to God's love. It's like the opposite of the way we get conditioned that that love on this plane is for the most part conditional mm. and that to really touch into the unconditional love of God is to know that that our works are really ultimately just another way to know God and that God's love for us is supersedes everything. I certainly notice my habitual pattern almost no matter what anything happens, is to doubt that, to immediately go into some form of self-referencing and mm. f- 
finding safety inside of myself or something, you know, that doesn't seem like it should be happening. As I said, again, what I get from reading that is inspiration, actually, just to take another step into the water, to, to wade in a little deeper, that there's somebody who's really gotten their feet wet and probably a lot more than their feet. And they're really yeah. imbibing that and transmitting that. And I find it very inspiring. Their conviction oh, yeah. that this universe is actually fundamentally good, that even though things mm. can look really bad at times, that we don't pretend that, that they don't feel bad when they feel bad. But in having yeah. people like this who've really entered into their darkness, into their pain, and they've transmuted it, and they've come to see with deep clarity and certainty inside of themselves that this universe fundamentally is good. It's made of goodness. You know, it's very inspiring. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Here's another beautiful quote he has around devotion. He says, For however devoted you are to him, you may be sure that he is immeasurably more devoted to you and has incomparable more faith in you. For he is faithfulness itself. Of this we can be certain, as those who love him are certain. Mm. That's gorgeous. It's like in his words, we're able to lean into his conviction and then mm -hmm. access, access our own a little bit more, you know? Right, yeah. It reminds me of a of a thought I had about or a recognition how God is, of course, exemplifies or or characterizes every ideal of spirituality that we can know. In other words, God is perfect humility. God is perfect mm -hmm. courage. God is perfect love, perfect presence, perfect light perfect forbearance and magnanimity and like all of those things, God is that ideal representation. And I had this experience on a, on a silence retreat of how God is, as, is the most humble. That is God dwells close to the earth and is in the blades of grass and in small animals and insects. And like, it's not grand and glorious. It's actually in the quiet and in the small and in the apparently insignificant, God dwells most clearly. And that when we become humble, it's, we, we then relate. It's like then we see, I forget who said that, but the problem is people look for God. People don't look low enough for God. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's gorgeous. <laughs> Here's a little quote that I think echoes some of that as well. He says, indeed, the more we are our own possession, the less we are God's possession. Mm. 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 Yeah, it's, it calls to mind the first commandment, you know, that you should have no gods before me. And, uh, and that really the extreme interpretation of that commandment is that to have any any other gods before god is to have anything including thought including yes any 
anything we would rely on or depend on or assumption about who we are or how the world is put together, all of that can become other gods that we give our allegiance to. Whereas when we come into the presence still in stillness and in silence and not in not engaging or indulging thought, then God is primary. And then that is self-confirming and becomes very stabilizing mentally and emotionally stabilizing. That's beautiful. Mm. It's really beautiful. Yeah. It's like the, um, you know, in Dzogchen, there's the, there's this, the famous practice of short moments of awareness repeated many times become continuous. Yeah. Um, that's a beautiful practice, which I've found exists in every tradition across the globe. Every tradition has some version of that, of, of stopping your life in the moment and pausing and just being with pure being for, for a short while. Brother Lawrence, who was a medieval French monk, um, who was a cook, basically came up with the same practice. He called it the holy moment. And he was, uh, he was this cook and he was frustrated because he couldn't join in with the other monks in the, the rhythm of the day and in their prayers. And because he was always either buying or cooking food or cleaning and, mm. and, and he realized like he could actually pray with them in short moments and he would just pause for like 30 seconds and, and tune into the Holy spirit and then continue with his day. And because he did this practice so frequently, he quickly became ex like very full of light and, and he became famous and people would come from all over the place to seek his counsel. And all the brothers were like, what are you seeking the cook's counsel for? <laughs> but, but he, he became quite awake. And uh, I've done this practice and I find it, it's extremely powerful because it's, it captures everything Eckhart's talking about in terms of ridding ourselves of God and becoming empty and still. And this, when we become come into the present and just be present with being what's happening is we're not at least for that time we're not giving energy to thinking mm. and it's those thoughts that become gods before god and so in the presence of god when we're just in presence for a short moment we're in the truth and in the zogchen practice zogchen tradition that re repetition establishes that experience in us more and more deeply so that it becomes integrated and then and then it becomes more uh more our daily lived experience what that source is and that we live from that freedom well it's beautiful in that story you're speaking about brother lawrence that probably the reason it became so embodied and real for him is because it arose from him from the inside out it wasn't something mm. that a tradition was imposing upon him so because it was so organic to him, it sort of took root in him and inspired many other people. Right. And it's amazing how many other traditions, as you say, have that practice. Maybe the in Islam, they have the call to prayer five times a day. And, and when mm -hmm. I was growing up in Ireland, we have the Angelus every day at 6 p.m. for one minute, even on the national, the main TV channel in Ireland, RTE they would always have this one minute where they would have a pause and they would just show beautiful scenes from nature. 
And of course, nobody really educated us around us as to what to do with that. It was just this sort of, oh, we're just watching scenes as, as children or teenagers growing up. But when we understand it in the context of what we're talking about here, it makes so much sense having these pauses. But it often doesn't work, as I was saying, when it's imposed from the outside, at least unless there's other right. people around us really embodying that way of being. Right. Whereas for that person, it really came from the inside out. So it was something that became truly meaningful for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. He just intuited how powerful that would be. And um, it had a tremendous effect on him. He he wrote a little pamphlet on on the practice and um, you can you can find it. It's just called The Practice of Brother Lawrence and uh, well worth a read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's actually similar to the Jesus prayer in the Orthodox tradition, um, which in its fullest expression or version goes lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on me a sinner you can do shorter versions of that which is just like lord christ have mercy or just christ have mercy um but in that tradition they would they would be saying that prayer internally all the time you know saint paul had that verse where he says pray continuously and and so in the orthodox tradition that's that's how they interpret that verse and it's another way of stilling the mind or at least not engaging the mind in thought if it's like a mantra you know it's caught up in this in its own internal activity that's pointing to god that that's like another practice for how we come into the mystery of god in a way that we're not referencing our mind yeah i've been thinking a lot about prayer recently or reinterpreting it in my own being and it's like if we feel we can do something in any moment that can help that's useful to us by all means go ahead and do it but when we notice ourselves second guessing ourselves and actually not knowing the next step the most honest thing for a mind to do is to admit that and to pray mm. and not pray in some particularly religious or grandiose way but just the humility of admitting, I don't know what to do, and emptying ourselves of the struggle of that and just opening to whatever way we want yeah. to call it, as I said, the universe, God, just to, that something else, a higher intelligence, a more simple way of being can flood our awareness and educate us in that moment. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> and even our own intuition starts to wake up the more exactly. that we're able to become centered, tune into our breathing, connect with sensation, and just just be in that space without indulging a whole lot of thinking, because the worrying mind can go on forever. But when we're present to breath and sensation, there's like that deeper intuition can come to us and we get insight or we get we get stirrings of you could say the Holy Spirit or our own higher intelligence about what's what's going to be of most benefit to us and, and others. Mm, beautiful. Here's another quote from him. He says, So how then should I love God? You should love God non-mentally. That is to say, the soul should become non-mental and stripped of her mental images. For as long as your soul is mental, she will possess images. 
as long as she possesses images, she will possess intermediaries. And as long as she possesses intermediaries, she will not have unity or simplicity. As long as she lacks simplicity, she does not truly love God, for true love depends upon simplicity. Indeed, you must love him as he is one, pure, simple, and transparent, free from all duality, and we should eternally sink into this one, thus passing from something into nothing. So help us God. Amen. Mm. Clarity. Gorgeous. Clarity. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He's a straight yeah. shooter, that fellow, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like I've, I've heard some, some of the Hasidic Jewish mystics talking about, um, you know, if, if I'm looking towards God or wanting to be in relationship with God for what God will give me or looking to God like a vending machine. Or like, I'm, I'm, my prayers are always about fixing my life or giving me the next thing I want. Then I'm not really in relationship with God. I'm just in a kind of utilitarian using God. And, and that that's not really a relationship. And the, so this Hasidic mystic was just talking about when I want God's love for its own sake, God for God's own sake, without reference to what it's going to get me. Which is what you echoed to me earlier about Adi Ashanti speaking about loving truth for truth's sake, right? Yes, to right. To love the truth above all else, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Here's a quote that might be a little harder to understand on surface, but I think it's very powerful. Maybe we'll just read it and sit with it and we'll see where it goes. He says, hmm. A man who abides in God's love must be dead to himself and all created things and regard himself as a mere unit among a thousand million. Such a man must renounce himself and all the world. Mm. So this would seem perhaps a little more controversial in the way it's presented, perhaps in the via negativa. Right. It's the taking away, but only in paradoxical nature to it, right? Right. Yeah, well, I think there can be a fine line between self-emptying and self-deprecation. Well and of course, there's a, a long history in the church of the abuse of that notion of uh, of the emptying or the dissolving of the ego and how some other people are all too happy to help you in, yeah. in that <laughs> process God, um, allow yeah. me to help you unravel your ego but i think you know it's in its healthy aspect it's it's really just about telling the truth or or embracing the fact of our small self that our small self really is in the universe utterly inconsequential. <laughs> you know, we're just a speck of dust or a speck of a speck of a speck of dust. And, and yet 
because we are this timeless consciousness, this timeless awareness, we are inseparable from the timeless awareness that is God. And so we're both all that is, and we're utterly nothing at the same time. And, and that the willingness to, to see the emptiness of our, or you could say traditionally that our own poverty is, is the actual opening to seeing our timeless nature, our divinity. I was in, I was in the cemetery yesterday and I was walking and I was just, it, there was something almost comical about all these monuments and elaborate grave sites uh, that were in the cemetery. Most of these graves were there from like the late 19th century, early 20th century. And so there were some pretty elaborate marble and granite sculptures and obelisks and mausoleums. And they were all, to me, I was just seeing them all as kind of these desperate attempts to reject mortality or to somehow make mm. a permanent like, presence in the world. Like, this is my little plot of land and this is my obelisk and God damn it, I will be here <laughs> eternally. <laughs> and Good I thought how that, yeah. comical that is. <laughs> it's something so <laughs> absurd about that. Like you could you could make an obelisk the size of Jupiter and it would still be inconsequential in the universe, and and so I was thinking like what could be my grave site like what would be my grave marker, and I thought how about this little leaf, like a small leaf that just sits on the ground and then uh. it blows away or it just dissolves in the next rainstorm or. Like that could be my gravestone and that's all that's remembered of me in a fleeting way. And then that would be fine. Mm. That would be totally fine because, because that is the nature of this egoic self that's, that is utterly temporal, impermanent. Because then, then that connects me to what, is, what it is permanent that is within me, that is my true mm. nature. So, yeah. And it's like Funny, your, your ability to tap into that probably is what allows your ability to let go of your longing to live in the afterlife, you know, whether it's through whatever large gravestone you have. So that's beautiful that you're able to recognize that, right? Yeah. And that was in that moment that I have my moments of for sure fear and wanting to cling to making something of myself or being recognized and appreciated. Yeah, so those, absolutely. those experiences show up as well. I certainly don't present myself as a, as having arrived somewhere, but, but that was such a liberating experience mm. and freeing to, to open to that possibility of being completely forgotten. <laughs> I noticed that quote that I just read there, and I want to just elaborate on it slightly just to say that there, oh, there's another quote I'll read in a second as well that has a similar sentiment that's very, very deep. And I think it wouldn't do us justice to Meister Eckhart if we didn't read these quotes. But at mm. the same time, just to recognize that when he's saying must be dead to himself, and we're saying about a mm. human being mm. coming to that space, right. in my opinion, he's emphatically not saying that we shouldn't love and care for ourselves and that other dimension right. of our being. But at the deepest part where we're longing to let go of ourselves, that's where this teaching is pointing to. But to confuse that with the other ones and to start treating oneself with lack of self-care or any of those other ways that are malicious to ourselves. That is not what he's saying at all, in my opinion. And 
to get up in arms about that or to be thinking that he's nihilistic or anything is honestly, in my opinion, misinterpreting what he's saying. Right, right. Yeah, it's like he's so in tune with that Buddhist teaching, not even knowing he was, but <laughs> about hundred percent about misidentification, like the whole problem of our human condition or the source of our suffering is misidentification that we identify with this this body mind, and that when we remember that it's our Buddha nature that's our true nature that it is impermanent, that's freedom, that's enlightenment. The more you're disidentified with the body more, mind, in a way, the more fully you can enter it, the more you can let yourself go into the human experience and giving yourself the freedom to have every experience, including exactly. every little tantrum or resistance or, or petty hatred. or Like the whole spectrum of response is free to come up and we don't have to manipulate and control ourselves and to desperately be in this project of improving ourselves or being good people but instead of letting the flow of spirit and the flow of life move through us it becomes more playful it becomes the ras lila the, the divine play um in, and in fact there's there's this aspect of eckhart's teachings that i find so deeply humanizing and embracing of our of our humanity compassionate of the ways we are that that isn't just about self-emptying but it's also about entering into life in a fresh way in a way that we can be playful and and hold it lightly you know he Eckhart has another quote where he says wisdom consists in doing the next thing you have to do mm. doing it with your whole heart and finding delight in doing it so to me that's that's almost like a, a mirror or a the opposite side of self-emptying is the the game of taking delight in life and fully engaging um, with our whole hearts in in the human experience. I love that about him that there's he he carries both sides. He's not it isn't a dissociated kind of transcendent. Um, Very nice, yeah. Like exiting from life, it's. It's a dying into it, like in that earlier quote, that we must learn to penetrate things and to find God there. Mm. His ability to move both towards and away from almost at the same time and to hold both of them paradoxically. And I think that's a nice mm. segue into this next quote here where he's really echoing a sort of ultimate detachment, but keeping in mind what you just said too, that in light of that depth of his non-attachment, he's able to be more human. He's mm, able to mm. embrace his humanity more fully. So here's what he says. He says, Love is as strong as death, as hard as hell. Death separates the soul from the body, but love separates all things from the soul. Mm. Death separates the soul from the body, mm. but love separates all things from the soul. Mm. That's gorgeous. And the fact that he calls that love, yeah, that level of detachment he's calling love, yeah, that all things are separated from the soul, that there's an aspect of him that he's discovered 
that's been made aware through him through the process of love, it sounds like. Yeah. That's completely untouched by even matters of the soul. Right. Yeah. And I love that the word love there can be used interchangeably with God. Or that yeah. like to be to be freed from all things at the soul level is to be in union with God or is to be in love, in the field of love, which is God. And I've had I've had that experience of noticing how my love of God and God's love of me is intertwined and is so is so strong that I lose a sense of who's who. <laughs> you know, like there's no directionality after some time. There's just the field. The field of love itself is what we are, and we're just in that. And that he's Eckhart's pointing to like when we're when the soul is separated from all things, we're in our true nature, which is which is ultimately liberated and transdimensional or outside of that the space time continuum that's right the, beyond the causal i actually don't think i have any quotes here from that yesterday but whatever i was looking at I mean, perhaps i was listening to some of his talks being read aloud and it was very clear to me from whoever was reading them that he had deeply discovered that place that so many of the hindu and buddhist scholars and practitioners have spoken about Mm. that time and space itself are temporal mm. and he was basically saying in his practices to don't take time and space too seriously when it comes to matters of your soul to paraphrase mm -hmm. something he was saying you know mm. it's just very clear in his transmission that he had got the same downloads the same integration that so many of these eastern teachings have in spades you know yeah yeah that's gorgeous Here's another one around love, just to balance the equation of the other side of things, perhaps with mm. detachment. He just says, God ripened me, so I see it as true. All objects in existence are wildly in love. Mm. That's beautiful. That That makes me think of the Sufi orientation to this passionate love that we can have for God that's like that of a lover mm. that that love is like this all-consuming fire um, that just utterly takes up everything that it touches it's gorgeous mm. here's another one he says this is another one a translation from Daniel Ledinsky. He says it's called Expands His Being. He says, All beings are the words of God, His music, His art. Sacred books we are for the infinite camps in our souls. Each act reveals God and expands His being. I know that may be hard to comprehend. All creatures are doing their best to help God in his birth of himself. Enough talk of this tonight. He is laboring in me. I need to be silent for a while. <laughs> Worlds are forming in my heart. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's like Rumi will sometimes play that game of 
in the middle of a poem, he'll become self self conscious, and he'll he'll say he'll be speaking of God or speaking of his love of God, and and I, I don't remember the poem at the moment, but he'll say, "I have to put my pen down now." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I've reached the end of my capacity to express what I'm experiencing. I love that. It's so beautiful. Yeah. There's something in Daniel Ladinsky's translations too, which as we've spoken about before ourselves outside of this, his own transmission is coming through. And I think the fact that he's translated a lot of Rumi and Hafiz as well, there's something as I'm reading that poem that I can feel mm. the vibration of those people kind of perfuming through as well, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's great, Stephen. I think we've had a, I think that's enough for today, huh? Yeah, it's great. Great to explore all that with you. Yeah, very yeah. enjoyable. Anything else you want to say in closing about Eckhart or any of these other things? Well, it's just really wonderful to soak in his words with you. Um, and there's so much potent transmission in them. It, it's just another reminder of how someone who has such clarity like he has, um, yeah. it's a miracle to me that there's such, that so much potency can come through those words and hit us and we can taste where he was or they can actually put us there, which is a miracle to me that, that words have that power to, to take us beyond the words, to take us into that empty space. And, and we can talk about this all day long and everyone who might be listening to this can also sense that, that that space he's pointing to is so vast. It's so much bigger than anything we could ever say about it. And yet he miraculously captures it. So, <laughs> uh, Well, given what you just said, I feel like I should share one more because it really encapsulates mm. just what you said around words. He says, the spirit's hands, they can be a great help, words. They can become the spirit's hands and lift and caress you. Mm. So maybe that's a nice <laughs> note to end on. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Stephen. So welcome. Until next time, huh? Yes. Thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my conversation with Stephen Bross. Stephen runs a really beautiful Christian gathering in Boulder. I think he does it every two weeks when he's in town. If you'd like to find out information about that, you can go to his website, mysticheart.net. And if you'd like to find out about the work I offer, you can go to lensesthatliberate.com. All right, everybody. Take care. <laughs>